0: This is Upreneur FM, the official podcast of the Upreneur Mastermind Community, a place where no entrepreneur gets left behind in their pursuit of building a business they can be proud of. And now, now, here's your host, serial entrepreneur and best selling author, Chris Ducker. Well, hello and welcome to episode number 229 of Upreneur FM. It's a real pleasure. To have you with me today, and boy, 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 have I got a treat for you today. My very good friend, Michael Bungay Stania is in the house today talking all about how to become a better coach. And actually, we kick off the conversation talking about self-publishing. So before we get into that conversation with Michael, just a quick reminder that tickets to the Upana Summit are still on sale Only just, however, we're getting very close to selling out. And although we have now gone past the super early bird pricing, uh, you've still got early bird pricing that you can grab a hold of before we increase the price one last time to our full ticket price. So if you want to come to London in November and spend a weekend with other savvy, smart entrepreneurs focusing on building a sustainable, long-game, profitable business for them and the people that they want to serve. I really, really want to see you there. You can head over to upenersummit.com for more information, to grab your ticket, or to just drool over what has been called over and over and over again one of the most beautiful event landing pages that people have come across. So that's upenhersummit.com, London, England, November 11 and 12. I want to see you there. So on to my conversation with Michael. Um, We've only actually just recently got to know each other through a mutual friend. And I've got to say, I am so glad that Michael is now in my life, genuinely. Not only is he a really, really nice guy, but he's super Super smart as well. And um, his best-selling book, The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever, has become a Wall Street Journal bestseller. He sold over a quarter of a million copies, and he self-published it. So if you want to skip the self-publishing strategies and ideas that he put in place to sell that many copies of this book. Skip about 15 minutes from this point into the call, and then you'll get into all of the coaching know-how and how to become a better coach, better consultant, better leader, that kind of stuff that we talk about in the majority of the call. However, if you're in the process of marketing your book or about to market it, or maybe just about to start writing your first or your next book, make sure you listen from this moment onwards, because boy, does he share some golden nuggets. Here's myself and Michael. I know know you're gonna thoroughly enjoy the call. So Michael, welcome to the show. So glad to be here, Chris. It's good to chat. You, know, you and I've been chatting on and
1: off for a while now, so to actually sit down and do a recorded version of it. It's going to be fun to see where we go with it
0: all. I know. It could go either way, right? It could, it could be great or it could way. be horrifically bad. I mean I I I really just want to say that um, in the short time that we've known each other, you've blown me away with the quality that you do everything. And I always put a real, you know, priority attached to doing things right. Doing things right is better than just doing things, right? And so for me, I I think that um, one of the things that really stood out, for me when we first started conversing, was the quality that you attached to everything that you did. So I want, I want to give you a virtual high five for that oh, straight you. away. And I think you it's know, right, important right, to right recognize in front of me,
1: it. Right in front of me on my computer, I got this quote from Charles Bukowski that says, if you're going to try, go all the way. Otherwise, don't even start. Yeah. And it's there as a reminder, because actually, I'm, I'm more wired as a dabbler, you know, I kind of do a little bit and then go, oh, yeah, I kind of get it. That's good enough. Mm-hmm. And particularly in the world that we live in where um you know what we do is we create content and we create information and we try and create businesses and we try to be different it's so easy to do it at an okay level now you know it's because of the way technology works and the world works you can you can write an article you can publish a book you can do a video you can even run a business and you can do it okay and almost against my nature i've gone look if I'm going to do this, i have got to make it fantastic. i have going, going to give it a ten, 9 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10, not a 6 out of 10. So I appreciate you saying that.
0: Thank you. No, well, and, and it's very well, uh, you know, recognized. I can tell you that right now. And speaking of 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10, let's kick this off, right? <laughs> and I'm sure you won't mind me singing your praises any further. Um, <laughs> you very kindly sent me a copy of your... Wall Street Journal. It is. It is Wall Street Journal best-selling book, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay, so Wall yeah. Street Journal best-selling book, "The Coaching Habit: Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever." You sent me a copy of this book. Now, you had told me prior to sending me the copy of the book that this was a self-published book that you'd sold a quarter million copies, uh, and that our very good mutual friend Michael Hyatt said that when he saw this, he fell in love with the quality of the book as a self-published book, which is pretty. I mean, that's a massive compliment coming from the ex-CEO of Thomas Nelson, right? So I was very, very interested to see just how good this book looked and felt and smelt and all the rest (laughs) of it. And so when it came, I ripped it open. I looked at it, and I instantly started fanning through the pages as you do. And i got to give you a 9 out of 10, maybe a 10 out of 10 for for this book and the way that it looks as a self-published book. And I want to bring that up right out of the gate here. Because there are a lot of uh, UPenner FM listeners that are self published authors or are contemplating self publishing either their first book or their next book. Um, And, you know, some of them are concerned about the quality of printing about the quality of finishing of covers and things like that and i want to can we just spend just a few minutes here talking about the process that you went through to put together such a beautiful looking book because you've given me some insights on how you had it designed and why you had it designed in a certain way and i think it would be great for you to share that with the listeners so they can get some takeaways on that
1: Well, I mean the starting point to say is that – so this is my fifth book and one of them at least of my previous books was published by a fancy New York Publish House. And I honestly thought this book was going to be published by them as well but I spent three or four years pitching it to them in kind of increasingly desperate ways. I mean I wrote three or four versions of this book, Chris, before I finally got to this version Mm -hmm. and they kept turning me down. They they didn't see it. And it finally got to a point at the end of – I guess, at the end of 2014, where I said to them, look, you got a choice here. You either say yes to the vision of the book or you say no. And they said no. (laughs) And I I was disheartened because the previous book I'd done with them, Do More Great Work, it sold 100,000 copies, which is, you know, better than
0: many books. You know, it's top you know it's a decent well, it's better than 97 percent of, of books i would have thought i mean yeah. you know i think so, what, somebody once told me that most non-fiction books sell less than a thousand copies or something yeah. insane I've heard like that too. Yeah. yeah i've heard yeah. That, that number two
1: and uh so i was like
0: oh, i thought they'd bet on the person
1: rather than betting on just the, the book which they didn't quite mm. get but they didn't mm. so i had that moment of going so do i try and find another publishing house because i probably I, you know i know enough people that i could probably at least get an introduction or do I go self-publishing? And I, I decided on self-publishing because, honestly, it, it's just much faster. You know, I can, yes. I, I, knew I could get a book out in 9 to 12 months rather than 12 to 18 months. And I knew that I could maintain control. And I knew that doing self-publishing brings in compromise, um, potentially, because there's just a bunch of things that as a self-publishing p- published person, you just don't even know what to be looking for. And Chris, the thing that made the most difference for me is I figured out what why I wanted to do this book. And I think that's really important for entrepreneurs and folks listening in to actually think about it. If you're thinking about writing a book, the first thing you need to know is writing a book is a miserable, miserable experience. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, it, it's really hard. You you think you've got an idea, but then you're like, the first draft is much harder to write than you thought. All the all the stuff you thought you knew, you don't know after all. And Then you're like, I've got to try and make it interesting so you can't just pump out kind of cliched stuff you've seen before. And it's it's hard work. And as Chris Mm. has already said, most books sell less than a thousand copies. So it's really worth going, why would I do this to myself? And what really helps for me as a starting point is this book fits into the ecosystem of my business. So my company is called Box of Crayons, and we're a training company. So we train 10-minute coaching so busy managers can build stronger teams and get better results. That's our little tagline. And I knew a couple of things. I knew that even if this book sold six copies out in the real world, it would be a um, condensation of my thoughts and my wisdom and my philosophy that we would be able to include in all the programs that we run. So I knew that I had the channel to get the book out into the world regardless of how it did in the traditional sales channels and secondly i knew that the real purpose of the book if everything went well was as a business tool to make uh well it's one of the key purposes of the book was as a business tool to help people who buy training programs go this was a great book i should look up box of Crowns and see what they do right so i knew that it had to have a certain caliber to it to, to make that work so In my head, I was like, okay, in a perfect world, this is a book that shows up in an airport because that's where VPs of HR and VPs of L&D are always looking for the next new book. So it has to have a a look and a feel that this is a real book, not a slightly lower quality self-published book. So I need to be able to invest in that higher quality stock and a heavier weight and a good designer and all of that. And I need it to be the right size and shape so that a woman can look at it because the majority of the people who buy our programs are women They mm-hmm. can go, you know what? I could, I could put that into my purse so I can carry on that. I'm removing a barrier from them buying it. And when you open it, just as you've said, Chris, it's got lots of white space and a real design feel to it. So it feels welcoming rather than slightly intimidating. So people can go, Oh, you know, actually I can, I, I could read that. That's not too, I can read that. look doesn't look too long or too hard or too scary. So, the the decision to self-publish there's a there's a kind of backstory to do it going i've got a strategy i've got a standard i've got a commitment to it which means that it's not going to work for me to go through some of the the, the normal self-publishing channels mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. they can be fine like amazon and create space and and lulu they've all got great opportunities for you to get a book out into the world but they've got a limited a limitation on what you can do in terms of quality of the paper and the quality of the cover and the quality of the design. So you're it's easier, but it, it may not get you exactly what you want. So for the folks listening in, this is a very long answer, Chris, I'm afraid, but the folks listening in No, I love it. Keep going. you if you're if you're thinking of writing a book, the first question is why on earth would you do that? <laughs> yes. Um I'm 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 really on, on your side to say create create a point of view, create intellectual property that's yours. But remember that a book is just one way of getting it out into the world. It's not the only way. Secondly, if you are going to do a book, know why you're going to do it. You know, is it because you've got a book inside you and you don't care how many it sells, but you want to be able to tell your your friends and your family and your wife, I've written the book and you've given 150 of them away to people on Christmas present and that's it, you're done. And that's an awesome reason to to write a book and to self publish it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you're mm-hmm. looking to go, this is going to cement me as a thought leader. This is going to drive my business. If it's got that bigger role to play, then you might want to think about how do I lift the quality of it? How do I make this different from the other you know
0: eight billion books that get published every year? I love it, and I and I I I think that the big thing for me with self publishing, and I want to actually let's just rewind for a second so i like the idea that you say like you know it doesn't necessarily have to be a book to get your message out there and i we've we've talked about that a lot on this show, um, right. that it, it can be a podcast, it can be a YouTube channel, it can be live streaming, it can be a good old-fashioned blog, you know, it, yeah. it, it can be, hell, I mean, it can be an Instagram profile, it doesn't really matter right. what it is, um, but I think that if you do feel like you've got a book in you, and if you do feel like you want to elaborate on that message, and obviously a book is a great way to go, but you're absolutely right when it comes to things like Lulu and Create Space they they do have limitations in terms of the quality of, of paper stock and things like that. And if you do want something a little bit more high-end feeling, you've got to go somewhere else, obviously.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, an alternative way of explaining this is look at the difference between the typical PowerPoint presentation and, say, a PowerPoint presentation that shows up in TED, a TED Talk.
0: Mm, mm. And the
1: TED Talk presentation has been... Polished, the images are beautiful, the design is distinctive and specific. You know, it's it's something when it shows up in a TED talk. Most PowerPoint things, terrible. Too many words, ugly layout, bad photos, clip art. I mean it's just a mess. Yeah. And I you know, my commitment to myself was if I'm self publishing, I need it to be TED quality. I need it to be at that standard. And the starting point for that was to find a designer that actually uh, could do a really beautiful job at designing this book to look differently because you know I know how to lay out a page on word so that it reads fine um, I could have done a perfectly satisfactory job as doing the layout myself because you know it's not that hard to format a, a word document or whatever sure but but we we hired Peter I, you know, we, we, I typed in award winning Canadian designer I'm based in Canada I was like I want to find a Canadian to do this and Peter was the guy who we then worked with really closely to come up with the distinctive look and feel of the book. And we get a ton of nice compliments about that design. You you just you role model that beautifully at the start of the, the conversation uh, because we're like, design matters. I'm such a big believer in design matters because mm-hmm. content is free. It, anything that's ever been thought is available for free on google at the moment you know you never have to pay for any single piece of content again if you didn't want to but what design does is it makes content accessible and elegant and distinctive so that people may see old content in new eyes and so people may associate old content with new ways of framing it or new thinking about it on associated with you so i'm a big believer in going look if you don't have that strong design eye find somebody who does, mm. so they can elevate the work that you do.
0: I love it. So, okay, let's let's talk about how you have sold. Then, just very briefly, the last part of when we're discussing the book here or, or the the book itself. Um yep. How have you sold a quarter million copies of the self published book? Well, there's there's a rabbit hole. <laughs> I'm t- I'm let's going go to right down it. To- so,
1: the, the, I, it's fair to say, Chris, that this book has succeeded well beyond my expectations. Okay. I was, I was what, what hoping you, What that, was
0: the target? What was the target?
1: You know, I didn't have a target. And, I, and I'll tell you why. Because I tried to do this. And, and look, for people who want a deeper dive into everything I did around this book, I, I published an article about a month ago on a blog called Growth Lab. It's called How I Sold 180,000 Copies of My Book and Doubled the Revenue in My Business. And it actually gives a lot of the marketing tactics and strategies that I'm about to talk about with Chris, and in a bit more depth. So if you want to Google that, you can you can certainly check that out. But part of that conversation, Chris, is what what what's my target? And I, honestly, I made up numbers. I went, I want to sell ten thousand. And I'm like, well, okay, 10,000 is good, but it's also you know it's not. I can I can do better than ten thousand. I want to sell fifty thousand. Wow, that's that's great. I'd love to sell fifty thousand, but What's the difference between saying I want to sell 50,000 – and in the end, I'm like, I'm just making numbers up here. I have no idea how many books I'm going to sell. And then it occurred to me, publishers have no idea how many books they're going to sell. That's why it's so hard to understand people's um, advances that they get because you get your advance based on basically how many books they think you're going to sell. Some people get enormous advances and some people don't. And honestly, most authors don't earn out their advances. What, what yes. that means is most publishers don't really know how many copies of the book they've just bought is actually going to sell. They're just guessing. So mm. I'm like, okay. So I can't set a target on an outcome, but I can set a commitment to a process. And, you know, this, this is just one of those things that in, if you can get this happening in life uh, – and I wish I could do it more often myself – you can't really control the outcome. You can control the process. So I was you – know, my real commitment was twofold. One is to, to – like that Charles Bukowski quote I read at the start is like if I'm, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go all in. Right. I'm not going to wimp out. I'm not going to go cheap. I'm not going to kind of dabble. I'm going to really show up and I'm going to market this. And the other commitment
0: was I was going to market it for a year. Mm. okay so i love this the long the longer game approach to the launch because yeah. some people just they they're all about that first week or that first month or whatever the case may be and then they take the foot right off the gas um yeah, i love exhausted. that commitment yeah, well they exactly exactly they are you're absolutely right it's very very tiring
1: so there's a game that you there's a game that gets played in in the book world which is i want to hit a list because if i'm a wall street journal bestseller or a new york times bestseller that elevates me it gives me status you, you charge more if you're a speaker You know you suddenly you're you must be super smart because you're a New York Times bestseller And I went there's not a hope in hell of me getting onto a list. It just isn't you know, it's a self-published book um right. I I know enough about What it takes to get on a list to know that many of the books that show up on a particularly business list and nonfiction list I kind of gamed to get up there. You know, people, there are a couple of agencies out in the world oh, where yeah, you pay a yeah, six-figure yeah. a six, a six figure number and they figure out a way of making it appear like you've sold enough books to get you onto the list for a week and then you vanish. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm I'm not going for the list. I'm just going to try and figure out how to market this as best I can. Mm-hmm. And we tried a bunch of things, some of which didn't work that well and some of which really did. One of the things that, that worked well is – a much more targeted campaign to get people to write about it and have me on their podcast and the like so the way it traditionally works is that because it turns out publishers are actually pretty crappy at marketing <laughs> what most publishers do is they have a list of journalists and maybe podcast people and when a book comes out they just send out a press release hey chris darker has got a new book out which, which honestly, they're all the same. They're all boring. Nobody cares because so many books get published every 35 seconds um, And then often they'll just randomly send people copies of the book and hope that you, you Open it up. You get excited about it. You read it and then you'll write about it in some way or other and Because I knew that I was paying for every single copy of the book that went out I was like, I don't want to just randomly send out copies of the book. So one of the smart things I think we did is what, we, what, we, what I did is I hired somebody, um, outsourced somebody to, for, to say, look, Dan Pink's book Drive is similar but different from mine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's written for the same audience that I, I've written my book for. I want you to find the top 50 articles written about Drive, and I want you to find the names of the authors and their emails or their Twitter handles. And for not a whole lot of money, you know, somebody came back with a list of these 50 people. And then somebody on my team wrote to them and said, hey, I saw you wrote this great article on Drive in in Fortune magazine. Um, Dan Pink's actually loved this book from Michael. Maybe we'd like to send you a copy as well because it has this to do with motivation and, and engagement. And we got a really good response from that. Like more than 50% of people who we wrote to said, yes, send me a copy of the book. And then 50% again of those people who got a copy of the book then actually ended up writing about it because – The other thing we did is once we sent them a copy of the book, we followed up and then we followed up and then we followed up because, look, I'm one of the people who gets books sent to me. You know, I'm I'm a C-list celebrity, so I get books sent to me. (laughs) I've got a pile of 45 unread books sitting there looking at me balefully going, read me, damn it. And I'm like, I want to. I just, I've got other stuff to do. Right. But if I had somebody going, Michael, have you read that book yet? I'd be like, no. And then they go, Michael, have you read that book yet? I'm going, no, no, but I will, and I'd move it to the top of the pile. And then they go, Michael, have you read that book yet? I'm like, okay, I'm reading the book. <laughs> okay, and then they go, Michael, have you read the book? And I It's like, yes, I have read it. Okay, I'll write something about it. Leave me alone. <laughs> and and you know, you know, Woody Allen said eighty percent of success is just showing up, and the the reframe on that is eighty percent of success is the, being persistent. And not assuming that silence means no, and that's what mm. happens with a lot of people. Mm. I love that. So th- that didn't sell me 180,000 copies of the book. I mean, that sold me some. And and then there's just honestly, Chris, it's really worth pointing this out. There's just a little bit of magic with this book, a little bit of lightning in a bottle. That means that it is, it's it's got word of mouth. It's being passed around. It's being talked about. It's being bought for teams and it's being bought for organisations. And honestly, I wanted that to happen, but I've tried that with all my other books as well, and it didn't have that little bit of magic. Right. So part of it's just, let's call it for what it is, it's, it's that luck that comes from hard work and persistence, but it's still luck. It doesn't
0: show up most of the time, and it's right. got
1: a little bit of that going on.
0: But I think the persistence angle is, is or the focus is, is you know, it's, it's relevant to that story because if you hadn't of you know written all the books that you've done up to this one you probably wouldn't have learned step by step as you have done with each publishing um and you know maybe it's maybe it's not as much luck as you potentially think it is maybe there's a little bit more method to the madness there um, but you just can't pinpoint it and a lot of time when we can't pinpoint something we do put it down to luck or or you know uh you know just it happens that way or or, you know that this is uh you know serendipitous or whatever the case may be you know well, here's how I put it. I mean, there's that great quote, the harder I work,
1: the luckier I get. And I think that's true. Um, and I think, you know, with that, with all the hard work we did and and we did a, you know, we, we're actually still marketing the book. So, you know, it's like a year and a half, appearing on podcasts, writing articles, all that sort of stuff. Let's say that I should have expected to sell 100,000 copies of the book. Because, you know, worked hard, hustled, did all that sort of stuff. But to sell double that, That's where the luck comes in. You know, Mm, I think that's mm. where you go, okay, this has just got something that makes people like it and, and hooray, (laughs) because I, uh, because I guess one of the ways of saying this, Chris, is I know that if I ever write another book and I I might at this stage, I feel a bit burnt out, but if I might, I'll have to work really hard to rein my expectations in because it's really unlikely that that next book will do as well as this book.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah no i'm with you okay good let's talk about the book um okay. i want to and thank you for sharing all that and for you guys we will link uh to that article which is a very long very in-depth article that michael wrote for growth lab we'll link to that in the show notes over at chrisducker.com forward slash episode 229 so make sure you check that out it is a great great I mean, you know, I've read a lot of posts on how to become a bestseller, how to market your book and all this sort of type of thing. But what I loved about it was that, you know, clearly you've you, – you you mentioned, you know, horrifically bad ideas uh, and bad things yeah. that you did as well as the like hiring a PR person for three grand yeah. and, you know, getting on like one TV show or something. So, I mean, you know, I I, 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 I really, can relate.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, look, I really went – you know this, this, this doesn't this isn't a this doesn't drive or influence my business at all I just like let me show you what I've done and the stuff that worked and the stuff that didn't work because mm. I just the more people the more information people have, the better and I know there's been other people before me like Ryan Holiday or Tim Ferriss who've written articles going, here's what I did and just soaking all that up really helped me think about my marketing strategy as well so I'm happy to share it. so thanks for passing on the news. Yeah, good stuff.
0: All right so. Let's talk about the book. I, I mean, you know, the coaching habit. Okay. So we're talking becoming a better coacher, becoming a better leader. Um, potentially changing the way that we we lead as coaches consultants experts whatever you want to put on it maybe it's just as a blogger as a podcaster. i mean let's talk about just content creators in general um yeah. there was a couple of things that really stood out to me and you know and, and i've been very honest with with michael everybody i haven't finished the entire book but i have dived very solidly into it um there was a couple of things that really Dude, this interview is done no if you <laughs> yeah, can't read
1: my book I, I sent all the way to the Philippines. We're done here. I'm walking <laughs> off state. No, look, I've I'm got kidding.
0: 45 books in a pile. <laughs> <laughs> um, at least <laughs> I started it. No, no, I, and I, I am going to get through to finishing it without a doubt. If nothing else, just to continue to look at the gorgeous typesetting and all the rest of it. But I, I, for me, there was a couple of things that did pop out, um, yeah. and I wanted to, uh, I, I wanted to kind of just deep dive on them. A couple of things. So I think the first thing is like. How do we actually build? How do you start to build a habit or a new habit or tweak a current habit? Because it all begins with this at the end of the day, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's the perfect place to start. and. One of the ways I wanted this book to be different from other coaching books was a lot of other coaching books kind of spend a whole bunch of time explaining what coaching is and why it's really good. Hmm. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. If people are picking this book up, they probably understand that coaching is worthwhile. So, boom, let's just get into it. And the work that I do at Box of Crayons is about trying to get people to change their behavior. So we say, look, we're not really trying to turn people into coaches. We want people to be more coach-like. And by that, we mean, can you stay curious a little bit longer? And can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? And what that immediately says is a couple of things. One is, look, this isn't about a profession or a formal designation. It's about how you show up. This is kind of P2P stuff, to use a a Chris Ducker term. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do I build relationships with other people? And it's not about a formal relationship. It's like, if you interact with other human beings, being more curious – A little longer and rushing to action and advice giving a little more slowly will improve your relationships with those other people so that's the the framework and i want and the the point out of all of that is to say i want people to do things differently as a result of it most books give you content give you information they don't trigger behavior change so you know in the book there we just say look if you have seven good questions you can be more coach like but before we give you the seven questions, let's start with habit building, because unless you understand habits, habits are the building blocks of behavior change. It's going to be really hard for you to do something differently as a result. So that's what that first chapter is about. Mm. And, Chris, you know, I I stand on the shoulder of giants when it comes to talking about habits because, I mean, there's a lot of useless stuff out in the world about habit building One of the most pervasive and annoying is if you do it for 21 days, it becomes a habit. That's just wrong. But there are lots of good (laughs) stuff out there as well, like um, Charles Duhigg and the Power of Habit or BJ Fogg, that's with two G's on the end, and tinyhabits.com or Leah Babauter of Zen Habits. There's a lot of people who've written smart stuff about habit building. And I kind of took some of their work and some thinking of my own and created this new habit formula, which sets up the book. And it's just three parts to it. And the three parts are, when this happens, part one, instead of, part two, I will, in 60 seconds or less, part three. And so Mm. to break it down really quickly, when this happens is when you recognize the situation, the context, the trigger that sets off the old way of behaving that you want to change. Instead of is when you articulate the old habit that's no longer serving you. And then I will is when you articulate a new habit that you can do in a minute or less, 60 seconds or less. And so it sounds like this, you know, when Chris comes in for our weekly uh, check conversation and starts moaning and complaining about things as he always does, that's the first part, instead of instead of me jumping in and fixing it and solving it for him like I always do, I will, and here's the third part, I will ask him a question that say, Chris, what's the real challenge here for you? Hmm. So, what I'm doing is not reading the book and going, Yeah, I should be more like a coach. That would be great. What I hope people leave with is going, I'm leaving with two or three really specific habits to start building that
0: muscle to be more coach like. I love that. And I think that, I mean, you know, I I have private coaching clients. I am still a client of several coaches as well. I love working with cl- with, with, with coaches. And I think right. a lot of the time I feel, and I'm actually quite vocal about it with the people that I hire to either coach me or to mentor me or, you know, as, as a consultant, maybe I might hire somebody for one thing or another. Um, and I I always say, if I feel like I'm not if they are not getting to the question quick enough, I tell them. You know, I, I don't right. need to pussyfoot around anything. I'm a big boy. I've got big boy pants on. I don't, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, and, and you talk about that, and that really resonated with me as well. Like, get to the darn question quickly. Yeah. Um. And I love that. Elaborate on that a little bit, because I think it's yeah. so, so important. Well, there's two things.
1: One is get to the question quickly, and one is get to the point of the conversation quickly, mm-hmm. and they're both beneficial. And in the book, I, you know, so the book has these seven questions, but in between each question, there's this little tip on how to be, ask a better question. And one of them is if you've got a question, just get into it and ask it. And I, the metaphor I draw is uh, like a James Bond movie. You know, when you start a James Bond movie.
0: Um, I love it, this. I, I'm so happy you're going to tell this little yeah, story here because it's, like, it's so good.
1: It's not, it's not, there's not a slow 10-minute setup before anything happens. You know, It starts off with James Bond running at something and jumping off something and <laughs> yes. beating the hell out of somebody. And you're like, oh, my God, I do not know what's happening right now, but it
0: is on. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Right, He's skiing down a hill and getting yeah, shot at like yeah
1: and, jam and it's about it's like it's, it's all going on so you're like okay think of the same thing and sometimes because of our own anxiety our own uncertainty or our own willingness to commit we're like i'm just going to give you a 10 minute warm up spiel before i actually ask the question and i'm like don't bother just get to the question and ask it fast yeah i love that and then there's a, how do we get into the real conversation fast and actually. Really, lots of the questions in the book are about how do we get into something that matters fast? And I'll give you two questions to start off with. The first is the first question in the book, the kickstart question. And it's about how do you start the conversation more quickly so you get going? Because just as you said, Chris, I noticed when I watched really great coaches coach, they had an ability to get into it fast. And so the kickstart question is this, what's on your mind? what's on your mind and if as you hear that you notice how that immediately says to the person look you get to choose what we talk about but talk about something that's worrying you or making you anxious or exciting you or it's kind of like on the tip of your tongue let's go there let's not go to you know as happens in many organizations as an example where we do a report out and I just tell you everything that's happened for the last week it's kind of boring for me and it's boring for you it's like, what's in your mind is like, okay, we're there. We're going to jump into it. And then the second question that's related to this is, is actually number three in the book. And it's called the focus question. And the insight behind it is that the first challenge that somebody mentions is almost never the real challenge and rarely the only challenge. Mm. So the, the focus question is all about have the patience to st- slow down the rush to action and advice giving. And linger over finding out what the real challenge is. And so the question just reflects that. The question is, what's the real challenge here for you? And if you listen to how that question's built, Chris, you know, it's it's if you ask somebody what's the challenge here, you're gonna get an okay answer. It might be a bit similar to what they said when you asked them what's on your mind. When you ask them what's the real challenge here already it gets a little more intense right now you're saying to them there's more than one thing going on here what's the real challenge out of all of the things but i think it really gets oomph when you go what's the real challenge here for you Mm. and that's when the challenge swings from the issue to the person dealing with the issue so if i was coaching chris i go chris so what's the challenge and chris goes Ah, mary mary's driving me crazy I go, what's the real challenge? And it's like, well, Mary just never comes to work on time and I just really frustrated about that. Mary's a nightmare. And I go, but Chris, what's the real challenge here for you? And now it's like my I, I, I'm scared to give Mary the feedback and to hold her accountable for mm-hmm. showing up mm-hmm. on time. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the conversation's changed utterly. Now it's no longer about
0: Mary, it's about Chris dealing with Mary. Exactly. That makes all the difference. Let me ask you this, though. I mean, and and I've coached people myself in my own businesses. I've got 400 plus people working for me at any time throughout the course of the year. Um, I have sometimes felt, I guess probably the the right word would be resistance um, when I have you know started to work with somebody or started to mentor or coach somebody within the business particularly managers who might have been doing things in a certain way for a while uh, and I want to kind of adapt some kind of change to the way that they do it as the CEO and the owner of the business how, yeah. can we, how can we – How can we? like when we're coaching people, what's the best way in your opinion anyway to, to handle that kind of resistance that you might get? And I mean am I overreacting? Am I the only one that's getting resistance? I doubt I am. How can we potentially <laughs> handle it, right? Yeah.
1: Well, the first thing is to acknowledge up front that coaching is not the only leadership style. Mm. You know, Daniel Goleman, the kind of – the person who made emotional intelligence popular – he, taught, he wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review called Leadership That Gets Results. And he says, look, coaching is one of six different leadership styles. And great leaders know how to use all six at the appropriate time in the appropriate place. Each leadership style has its, its benefits, but also has, a, has its cost to, to applying it as well. What he did notice, though, is that coaching was the least utilized of the leadership styles even though it had the most impact on culture and employee engagement, and I think was number three in terms of really directly relating to a profitable bottom line. So the first thing to say is it might be that being more coach-like isn't necessarily always the solution there. Um, However, I do think, and the way I phrased it earlier on, can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit slower? That's very deliberately phrased because it doesn't say never give advice and never move to action. It just says, what if you started with a bit more curiosity, and you and you and you didn't rush to the telling piece right away? Hmm. So if you, so, all of that is kind of set up to try and answer your your tough question, which is okay. You've got somebody who's folding their arms and resisting this best of intentions I'm trying to engage you and make this happen and I think part of the starting point around this is self-management which is like how how does this trigger you how does this wind you up um, and what what behavior does do you then start exhibiting when you're triggered and pushed into a corner like that and there's a little section in the book of the drama triangle which maybe too long to get into now but it's a really powerful way of understanding when things get dysfunctional, what are the three different roles that play out? The victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. Mm-hmm. And how do you know when you start noticing what role you play when things get dysfunctional, what does that tell you? Um now question number four in the book is called the foundation question. And it's right at the heart. It's like number four out of seven. So right in the middle of the questions there. And and it is in some ways the hardest and most powerful question in the book, because the foundation question is simply this. What do you want? What do you want? And when you're in a a tough situation, not just trying to coach somebody, but just in general, when when a relationship gets a bit discombobulated and it's not playing out the way you want. One of the most powerful things you can do is ask yourself, what do I want here? What do I want? And Ask yourself, or maybe even ask them, what do they want? And what you find is asking that question actually is almost a way of resetting the relationship so that you get to have a more grounded and more adult relationship. Mm -hmm. So you're in that tough conversation with the person, and you're trying to be caring and coaching and kind of all that stuff, and you're kind of getting nothing back from them other than resistance. Part of what you may need to sit with is going, okay, so I, I think I see what's going on. That's the data. What are the facts? I'm noticing my judgments about what that means. And you'll, you'll have a lot of judgments based on not very many facts. You know, judgments like they're, terrible, they're a terrible person. They don't want to be here. They're deliberately disobeying me. They don't respect me. I'm not a good manager. I'm not a good coach. I've lost control. I shouldn't be in this position this whole thing is doomed i mean you can you can you know escalate from that sure but one of the one of the powerful things to do is say so what what's the request what's the, what do you want here and you get to make that request knowing that the answer may be no because they have the right to say yes no or maybe to anything that you ask them but they also need to know that there are consequences to that so you're like i need you to engage in this conversation with me and have a think about these answers and i'd like i'd like to have another meeting with you this time next next tomorrow where you've actually had a chance to think about this you know and or whatever it might be because it depends on who the person is and what the situation is but part of it for me is go sitting down and being grounded enough to ask yourself what do i want and what might they want and what does that tell me about how this conversation might go
0: I think you know for me uh, the way I look at things as well I mean I, I don't know how you feel as a a coach of coaches right but the way I look at, uh, at coaching and and whether it be working with clients at an arm's length you know paying clients whether it be working with my employees or my teams for me I try and focus the large majority of my of my coaching and mentoring around improvement and 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 growth of what they're doing how they're doing it why they're doing it where they're going to be three years five years from now um and i kind of i i i remember reading something early on in the book where you talked about sort of getting people to think in that way rather than just sort of getting to solve the problem or take care of the problem or whatever it was and i i remember that and that that kind of that kind of jumped out at me because i think that's so very very important a lot of people just want to sort of try and solve the problem when yeah. they hire a coach but often the problem is so deeply rooted that they they kind of they have to think about growing and improving and yeah, getting it. better you know what i mean i do so the language in the book is the difference between coaching for performance
1: and coaching for development and coaching for performance is getting the thing done and the metaphor we use is it's like a fire. You know you got a fire, you got to put it out or you got to build it up or you got to feed it whatever whatever you need to do. Um and and our our lives are really driven by those fires. You know sort the fire out. But coaching for <laughs> development is when you focus on the person who's dealing with the fire. So the person who has to put it out or build it up and you're helping them not only deal with the fire but learn as they deal with the fire. (coughs) Excuse me. So that kind of comes back to that uh, conversation we're having before about what's the real challenge and what's the real challenge here for you. What's the challenge is a coaching for performance conversation Mm. because like what needs to be fixed? What's the challenge here for you is a coaching for development conversation because it's now it's you going I need to grow I need to learn I need to be different at the end of dealing with whatever this issue is I don't only want the problem to go away but I want to be at a better place to handle this by
0: myself next time I love it uh, yeah that's so important as well and I think that a lot of people need that nudge a lot of the time as well right
1: well we're we're we are hungry to learn. I think, as human beings, and I
0: think some more hungry well, than others. Though, I mean, let's yeah, face it. Yeah, that's true. Um,
1: and I think um, one of the one of the things that can be an extremely way powerful way of reframing your role in this world is to think of yourself as a teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, and that you, that could be a parent, you could be a manager, you could be an employee. But it's like how do I help myself and others learn? Because if I learn, you know, the future belongs to those who can learn. Mm-hmm. because it's all changing and you need to be able to grow and adapt to what's ahead of you.
0: This and is why you know I've I instilled so so early on in all my children's lives the importance of reading. Like even right. my, my my youngest Charlie who's 8, he reads first thing in the morning. For 30 minutes untouched i don't care what he reads i don't I honestly i yeah. don't care he could read a uh, uh, you know uh, uh, a you know a Star Wars storybook or he could read the bloody Atlas it doesn't bother me I just yeah. want him with his head in a book for 30 minutes every single day at the beginning of each day and and now that. my my older two children um Chloe and, and CJ who are 19 and 22 respectively are still big readers they love to read and i'm a big reader as well so i I think that's so so very important to instill those kind of challenges and those those habits early on as or or as early on as possible yeah i love that i mean reading gives you i think particularly reading fiction
1: gives you an amazing ability for empathy Mm -hmm. and through empathy comes emotional intelligence which is my perspective isn't the only perspective in the world um, there are people who think differently and act differently from me, and they're humans, or you know, they have a, their own lives. How do I understand the world from beyond
0: just my own brain? You know, it's funny uh, you say that. Though I'm, I'm not a big fiction reader. I can't actually remember the last time I read a pure fiction book like i love autobiographies i love yeah. anything business related marketing related mindset related uh dan yep. you know daniel pink all those guys that you've mentioned already i mean i love all those 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 guys books but i actually can't remember the last time i sat down and read a proper fiction and other than the harry potter books at yeah. nighttime with the, with a little one you know what i mean i, yeah, I honestly sure. can't remember well
1: well i mean it, it, get you know drink from the well that nourishes you so yeah, yeah. to me, I, I've always been a reader of fiction as well as nonfiction. My wife is uh, was actually trained as a, a, a young adult librarian. So I, and, and I did a master's degree in literature. So I have this eclectic reading background, which is I love the business books. I love the science books. But I love, you know, kids books as well. So, um, But to your point, it's like it doesn't really
0: matter. Get a book and read it because right. it's going to open up a new world for you couldn't agree more so i i want to wrap this up actually i think and and obviously guys if you haven't figured this out already you've got to buy the bloody book you really do it's that good but i i want to finish this up on the importance of listening um i i was on a podcast interview yesterday somebody was interviewing me and they said to me you know what is what do you think is the number one skill that a good podcaster should should have and i said well if they're an If it's an interview based podcast, they should be able to listen more than they talk. Now, I personally, and, and I, I, you know, I find myself having issues with that as well because i'm a chatty bloke i like to talk with my guests and i very rarely have questions lined up i might have a handful of bullet points that i want to bring up in the conversations that i have but one of the you know the best um you know compliment that i can get as a podcaster is when i see my itunes reviews and it says this sounded like a couple of friends having a chat in a pub or sitting down at dinner that's what i want for this show But there have been shows where it's been very kind of rigid Q&A type shows, but the the host does waffle on over and over. And Here I am doing it right now, but you you, you see where I'm coming at. It's like I think that also as coaches, listening becomes probably one of the most important skills as well as asking great questions, obviously. What says Michael on on the (laughs) importance of of listening and, and honing that skill in?
1: Uh, I'm I'm sorry I drifted off. Yeah. What, what, what were you saying? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's too far. I mean, there's uh, on the podcasting. You know, there's nothing that drives me crazier is if you're you're being interviewed by somebody and they ask a question and you give a you, you give your best to go at a thoughtful answer and then they completely diseng- they don't engage with that answer at all. They just go, okay, here's my next question. Mm-hmm, and you're like, mm-hmm. okay, this is no longer a conversation. This is just a random random list of answers and it, it makes for a much less satisfying experience for everybody involved i think except for the person asking the questions who feels in control it, as a look forget about the coaching thing let's just talk about being human and interacting with other humans um there's there's three levels that go on one is i'm actively not listening to you <laughs> somebody's talking to right. you and you're like mm-hmm, yeah hmm. T- yeah i'm doing my email but yep yeah, i'm sure, yep yeah. I know how to grunt in the right uh, moments, make it sound like I'm listening. And you're like, oh, and I I find myself doing this more than I would care to admit. I'm like, oh, man, I I failed to hear a single
0: thing that was said in that conversation. I just pretended to be there. Right, and you're there kind of like you know, nodding and all that sort of type of thing, right? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. the
1: the wheel is spinning, but the hamster is dead, as somebody once said. (laughs) Um, Then I I do think there's another level of listening, which you are actually listening – but the, the the what's getting in the way is the internal chatter in the head, where you're like, what are they saying? What should I ask? What should I be doing? And then you get distracted about your life. You know, wait a sec, what's that noise? Did I take the chicken out to defrost it for dinner? You know, you you've heard most of the conversation, but part of your attention's actually been on your own stuff and what's going on in your own head. And occasionally you get the luxury of somebody who's able to show up and give you their full attention. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so what a gift you know they gave me their full attention attention is a precious commodity these days and they gave it to me they gave me their full attention that is pretty amazing and you feel it you feel it when they're like no this person is just with me and present with me engaged with me and it feels pretty awesome when you're on the receiving end of that and what's great for everybody listening to us now is you have the capacity to to do that you know turn your body to face them you know don't worry about what your role is in this conversation you don't have to have the answer you don't have to have the question you don't have to be the smart one you get to just kind of witness and be present and listen to that person and it's going to be a nourishing conversation for both of you
0: that's so good all right, I love this stuff. I got to finish the book. Evidently, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'm up to about a hundred. I'm, I'm, I'm not too far away. I'm about a one fifty or something like that. All, All right,
1: no. to, to people listening, i will just say the book is a fast read. I mean, I my goal in writing it. This is another design decision. Was what's the shortest book I could write that would still be useful? Because mm. too many business books are kind of bloated and full of filler and you know tedious stuff. I'm like. This is as lean a book as I could make it. It's like one percent body fat, so it's a fast it's a fast read. And people have actually said it's a funny read as well, so you might actually laugh a bit.
0: No, it is. It's it's very amusing at certain parts as well. I, and I and I'm genuinely going to sit down this weekend and finish it off. Um, Michael, it, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I want you to come back again at some point. Oh, I don't yeah, know. I I don't know what we're going to talk about, but it's going to be great regardless. Um, For you guys that are tuning in, obviously, if you want to find out a little bit more about Michael and the book and all the rest of it, head over to the show note page, chrisducker.com forward slash episode 229. Title of the book, again, is The Coaching Habit. Say less, ask more, and change the way you lead forever. It's available on Amazon and everywhere else, um, especially at airports. Am I right, Michael? you're right you read it you got it (laughs) um thanks for coming on the show man it was really good man it's a pleasure thanks for having me all right for you guys we'll be back at you again next week where oh i've got a real treat for you just me rambling on solo show coming your way uh next week i'm going to be talking about how to become more productive as a personal brand entrepreneur i know you're going to love it i'll see you then until take good care bye bye for now